Well, good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm an elder at Grace Chapel, and it's good to see you here. Let me welcome you all here this morning. Um, I have the the privilege of, of bringing God's Word to us this morning, so let me pray for that. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you, by your Spirit, would be our teacher this morning and that we might leave this place not just with knowledge, but with a sense of your presence that we could see that you are with us always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just sort of an informal poll. Have any of you been following the news about the revival in Asbury, Kentucky? I see a few people have. Well, there's been a revival there in uh, the college there in Asbury. And I was talking to Crystal about this, and she had listened to a podcast with the guy who had had spoke at chapel at right previous to this sort of outbreak of, of the Spirit there. And they, they asked him about his talk, and he, he described it as a remarkably mediocre sermon. So this morning, I was reading through my sermon, and I got to thinking, if a mediocre sermon can lead to a significant college revival, then by noon, we may well be on the cusp of the next Great Awakening. Anyway, our plan today is to work through our text. It's Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. And we'll get into the weeds a little bit today, and then hopefully we can make our way out, and then we'll make some application. I'm not going to read the entire text at once. We're going to kind of chunk it up as we go. So, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So right off the bat, Mark tells us that an official fact-finding delegation has hoofed it all the way from Jerusalem, probably at the invitation of the local Pharisees, and probably because the religious leaders at this time are beginning to see that Jesus is a threat. But Mark helps out his Gentile readers by describing the source of the tension. It's the issue of hand washing. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now in verse verse 3 says, The Pharisees and all the Jews... Mark may have in in mind just the religious class here because the hand-washing tradition wasn't yet an expectation for the entire Jewish population. But these guys are beginning to push for that. So the Pharisees are being a little disingenuous here and Jesus isn't having it. He calls them hypocrites for their obsession with the minutia of their tradition. And he slaps him with a quote from Isaiah 29 that contrasts the external self, what people see, with the internal self, the heart. Verse 6, And he said to them, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, it's pretty easy for us to be puzzled about the whole hand-washing thing. Since this is not about hygiene, let's see if we can understand why the Pharisees are so preoccupied with it. They seem obsessed with avoiding ritual defilement. So why do defilement and impurity matter so much to the Pharisees? Well, there's a backstory to that. The people of Israel were God's elect, meaning they had a special relationship with God. They were set apart. And Yahweh, their God, was visibly and personally present with them. He was personally present in the pillar of fire, in the glory cloud over the tabernacle, and later in Solomon's temple. His personal presence filled it. It was both beautiful and terrifying. Now, the Lord's presence is absolutely holy, which is awesome, but also really dangerous. A helpful analogy is the sun. The sun is radiant, it gives light, it gives warmth, it sustains life, but it's also dangerous. We wear sunscreen, right, to protect our skin. When astronauts go into space, they wear spacesuits. But even then, if they get too close to the sun, vaporized. So what's true about the sun is true for God's personal presence in the temple. If someone waltzed into God's presence while being defiled or impure, that is, they didn't have their spiritual spacesuit on, the consequences for them and for the nation would be terrible. And that's why it was important to be ritually pure. This was especially true for the priestly class. Their list of defiling things was even longer than the regular people because they were going to be nearer to God's personal presence. So, how did someone become defiled or unclean? How did, and how did you get that fixed? Well, the Torah gives a whole list of ways regular people could become impure. But here's the thing. None of them have to do with what we would call sin or moral failure. They're just part of life. In the biblical imagination, things that manifest mortality are what defile a person. And these things are reminders that we don't live in Eden. Death has entered the world. For example, you could become defiled by touching something dead, by having a skin disease or touching someone who had a skin disease, by giving birth through sexual contact or by touching blood. And by Jesus' day, mingling with Gentiles was thought to lead to impurity because Gentiles didn't follow the Torah. Gentiles were contagious. So in practical terms, if you buried a relative, you helped a friend with a skin disease, or you're making and having babies, or you're going to the market, all those things could defile you. But none of those things are sinful. But they are acts that can make you unfit for sacred space. Unable to be close to God's personal presence. And to fix that required purification through ritual washing and usually a quarantine. Now, here's the deal. By the time of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, the personal presence of God was not in the temple. It had never been in this temple. Remember, after David, Israel lapsed into the sin and the idolatry of the surrounding nations. 
And in Ezekiel 10, God had had it. He was fed up, and his personal presence left the temple. Judah was exiled to Babylon, and Solomon's temple was destroyed. Now, years later, some people returned from Babylon, and they built the temple. But what's telling is that God's personal presence and glory never returned. And the people wondered, why? Well, some taught that the Lord's presence might return if people would just purify themselves and follow the law more strictly. And this inevitably led to more rules and more rules. So now back to Jesus and the Pharisees. Nowhere in the Torah is there a command to wash your hands before eating. In fact, the only hand washing required in the Old Testament is that of the priests offering a sacrifice. So there is no biblical basis for objecting to what Jesus' disciples are doing. Pharisees sort of concede that point in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You see that? Traditions of the elders. It's not obedience to the scripture that's at issue here, but conformity to the tradition of the elders. What later came to be called the Mishnah. Okay, now we're going to have a Jewish Bible spasm here. What is the Mishnah? So during and after the Babylonian captivity, the rabbis developed a whole bunch of oral commentaries that interpreted the Torah. For example, the fourth commandment says to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy by not doing any work. Okay, but what does work mean? Is it work to water my goats? Can I walk to synagogue? How far can I walk? Can I carry a bag? How heavy can the bag be? Well, the rabbis created lists of rules to address those kinds of questions. Now, they did the same thing with questions about ritual purity. What do I do if I bump into a Gentile who's likely impure? What if I inadvertently grab a pomegranate that has touched a side of bacon? Sounds bad. Is washing my hands sufficient? How much water is enough? Can I reuse the water? If I wash my hands and water dribbles down to my elbows, does that contaminate my whole arm? Well, the rabbis established traditions answering these sorts of questions, and by a little bit after Jesus' day, all of this got written down. And that's the Mishnah. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees were beginning to push those traditions onto the people and say, all of this is binding on everybody. Now, Jesus points out that what's critical is the condition of the heart. But the Pharisees can't see it because they have established spiritual authority in themselves and in their tradition. They are committed to a righteousness of their own making. Now, once you've convinced people that your teaching is authoritative, it's on par with the scriptures, then you feel justified in messing with what the Bible says. And in our text, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for taking the commandment to honor mother and father and turning it on its head. You can almost feel Jesus' blood pressure just starting to go up in verse 8 here. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So if you're a Pharisee, you believe your traditions are the ground of spiritual authority, that they are as binding as the Bible, you feel free to manipulate the scriptures to suit your own purposes. Jesus isn't having it. He calls them out for overruling the word of God with their man-made traditions. Remember, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. The tradition of the Pharisees says, now wait, the scripture can't really mean honor like honor, honor with my money, honor. Here's a hypothetical. Mr. Pharisee's mom and dad are old. They need to go to assisted living. Mr. Pharisee doesn't want to pay for it. He wants to keep his money for himself and not spend it on his parents. Well, how can he make that happen? Well, you go to your local Torah expert, and they figured out how to do that while appearing not to violate the fifth commandment. It's genius. Here's how it works. The Torah says, I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. But it also says that if I make an oath, I have to keep it. So how about I make an oath that when I die, I will leave all my wealth to God. Bible says I can't break my oath, which means I can't spend money on my parents because it belongs to God. And the beauty of it is, I get to use the money until I die. Well, Jesus doesn't think that's what the fifth commandment is about. (laughs) Jesus recognizes that this is an authority, an issue of authority, uh, which takes precedence. The word of God or the traditions of men. Who speaks for God? Is it Jesus or is it the religious leaders? This is a showdown. And Jesus refuses to compromise. He refuses to concede that the Pharisees have the authority to apply the scriptures however they want. Now, it seems kind of strange, but at this point, the Pharisees just disappeared from the story. I don't know if they went home, what? But Jesus turns to his disciples and the people who have overheard the conflict with the Pharisees, and in verse 14, he returns to the question of purity and hand-washing. Verse 14, he called the people to him again, And said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, verse 15 is the parable. What makes it a parable is that like the story parables, the disciples are going to need Jesus to explain it. And that's what he does in verses 17 to 23. He sends the people away, and he turns to the disciples. Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now let's be clear. None of this is about hygiene or eating our vegetables. Yes, we should shower, and we should try to behave in healthy ways. What goes into us won't defile us, but it might kill us. Jesus' point is that we should tend to what's in our heart. Our heart is the seat of our true character, and what flows out of our hearts tells us whose we are. Now, this was a repeated theme throughout Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 23... He's having another go-round with the Pharisees about the priority of the heart over what's outside. And Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So for the Pharisees, keeping the outside pure and clean was what mattered. Because remember, if everyone looked pure and clean, maybe we can coax God's personal presence back into the temple. Here's what's so tragic. Because of their obsession with external appearances and rulemaking, they missed that God's personal presence had come and was already with them. Jesus was with them. The same personal presence that inhabited the tabernacle that inhabited the temple and that led them out of Egypt and into the promised land was with them. Everything they desired was present, but they couldn't see it. You know what's even more glorious than that? Jesus was not just God's personal presence in the temple, but as he told the Pharisees, he was the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Jesus, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so as we we start to wrap up, here's a question. Does what's inside still matter? 
Why should anyone care about what's in their heart so long as what's on the outside has a good look? Why should the church care? Why should individual believers care? Why should people who don't know Christ care? Well, let's talk about that. The church should care because like Jesus, we are also the temple. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But it's not just the church that's the temple, but believers, believers' bodies are also the temple. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the church, the body of Christ, and its members, we should care about what's on the inside. Because as our parable says, there is nothing outside a church or a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out of a person or a church are what defile. Okay, what comes out of us is what defiles it. But how does it get in there? Well, sometimes defiling things find their way inside us when we, the church, manipulate what God's word actually says until it says what we want it to say. Like the Pharisees, we are sometimes adept at creating our own tradition, our own Mishnah. So what does that even look like? Well, sometimes it happens when we soften or take the edge off something the Bible says. When we take what's clear and make it cloudy. It might sound like this. The scripture can't really mean I'm supposed to pursue my estranged family members. I don't even like them. The Bible can't really mean that consistent worship with God's people is more important than sports. Ouch. The scripture can't really mean I should never look at porn. It can't mean that I should stick with my spouse when I'm unhappy. I deserve to be happy. Scripture can't really mean I have actual obligations to the unborn and to the poor and to the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. Scripture can't really mean I should deny myself. And the Scripture can't really mean I have to forgive always. I bet each of us could come up with examples from our own life if we just gave it a little thought. The Lord doesn't like it when we take what he has said and accommodate it to the culture or our own warped priorities. He doesn't like it when we disfigure his word to make it palatable to the world. Doing that doesn't serve the church nor the lost. What about the lost? Why should someone who doesn't know Jesus care about what's on the inside 
so long as the part people see has the right look. Well, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is why you should care more about what's in your heart than how you look to the culture. Why? Because our secular postmodern world is trying to mold you into a cultural Pharisee who's as rigid and unforgiving as anyone from the first century. Our secular postmodern culture wants you to adopt its rules. And those rules separate the clean from the unclean and the pure from the impure with unforgiving zeal. If you don't believe me, step onto any social media platform and pick a side, either side, on some controversy, and you will discover Pharisaism like no other. That's the world we live in, a world of a billion little Mishnahs. But it doesn't have to be that way. Remember how the Pharisees hoped to bring God's personal presence back to the temple by multiplying their own righteousness? Remember how that obsession blinded them to the personal presence of God and the man Jesus who was already among them? That blindness is still real. But Jesus is here. He will give you eyes to see if you just ask him to. Invite him by his spirit to inhabit your heart, to take up residence and build you up as his temple. The Apostle Paul explained it to his friend Titus like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Even in our blindness, you find us and you draw us to your presence. Lord, you're shaping us into your temple. Lord, I pray we would be your temple and that our hearts would be such that you are pleased with our love for you and for our neighbors. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.